Those of you that are utilizing our children's ministry, you are more than welcome to, to take your children back there now. We run that through first grade. For those of you whose children are staying in the service, just by way of reminder, we love having kids in the service. Uh, I love hearing the noise and the life that that brings, and I love that they can learn the rhythms of our worship the same way that we are growing and, and learning uh, in as we worship together. Uh, we have for some time now been going just paragraph by paragraph through our confession, the London Confession of Faith, and uh, we finished chapter 5 last week, which dealt with the providence of God. And again, when this confession was crafted, it's taking into account all of God's Word. And, um, and so and you can see that if you, and we're going to start providing copies of the, the confession in the pew, but you can, uh, you can tell that by the footnotes if you were to read through it. But this morning, I wanted to read paragraph 1 of chapter 6. And so all of chapter 6 deals with the fall of man, of sin, and of eternal punishment. And this is what the confession says. It says, although God created man upright and perfect and gave him a righteous law, which had been unto life had he kept it and threatened death upon the breach thereof, yet he did not long abide in this honor. Satan, using the subtlety of the serpent to seduce Eve, then by her seducing Adam, who without any compulsion did willfully transgress the law of their creation in the command given unto them in eating the forbidden fruit, which God was pleased according to his wise and holy counsel to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. And so that is paragraph 1 of chapter 6. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is where we're going to, uh, to camp out at together. And if you don't have your Bibles, you can certainly follow along on the screen. Uh, but just by way of encouragement, just, you know, as you're regularly coming for Lord's Day worship, be sure to bring your own copy of God's Word. If you can't afford a copy of God's Word, we'd love to, to get you a copy of God's Word. But what I want to do is read, and we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper this morning. So a couple of weeks ago, we, we uh, looked at uh, baptism and what it's not, what it is. This week, we are going to do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. And I want to read starting with verse 17, and I'm going to read down to verse 34, and then I'm going to pray. But as I'm reading this morning, I'm just going to draw your attention. I'm going to make a few comments as I'm reading the text, just things I want, I want you to pay attention to that hopefully by me bringing your attention to it, it'll, it'll help you see the passage a, a bit more clearly. But the, the Apostle Paul writing to the church of Corinth, a very dysfunctional church, not unlike churches today, right? He wrote this uh, to give instructions about conduct regarding the Lord's Supper. And so starting verse six, 17, Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Right? And have you ever been a part of a church where that's the case? It's miserable, isn't it? And he says, and in part, he goes on, in part, I believe it. Right? I believe that there are divisions, he says. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, right, we're talking about the gathering, the gathering of Corinth, right? 
It's not to eat the Lord's Supper. Okay, so that's what the church of Corinth is calling it, but that's not what Paul is calling what they're doing, right? So just because we label something the Lord's Supper does not mean that it is the Lord's Supper that we're taking. Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, right, and and he's going to reveal here the the sinister nature of their heart posture. He says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now, here comes the, the reassertion of how Paul instructed them to take the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So, so note the, the holy, reverent approach right, that Paul's commending to the table, a passage of Scripture that's familiar with us because we read it every Sunday. Right? And then verse 27, Therefore, right, in light of this, in light of these instructions, Paul's saying, Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, right? Me- meaning guilty of despising the, the body and blood of Jesus or, or uh, treating it lightly or flippantly, using the elements that are intended for the Lord's Supper for another purpose, for uh, a, a, a purpose that isn't holy. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, right, the way that they're taking it, many are weak and sick among you. Right? God's afflicted them and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may be condemned with the world. Right? So again, we, we see God disciplining this church in order to bring them to a place of repentance. And then he concludes verse 33 and 34. Therefore, my brethren, in the light of this, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come, which is Paul's way of saying, you guys are a hot mess. I'll deal with the rest when I get there, right? Uh, let me pray, and then we're going to jump in together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, that it's living and active. We thank you that it's been preserved, God, and that we can read it and that we can, by your grace, be changed by it. So, God, grant us humility. Grant us the desire to want to conform uh, our lives, our individual lives, Lord, and us as a corporate body. Help us. Give us the desire to conform, to be conformed to your word, which is to be conformed to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord, it's in his name we pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now, let me frame 
this, this passage of Scripture uh, as we observe it together this morning. I want to set before you just a comment by uh, that old Puritan Matthew Henry. And he said that the church of Corinth here in this passage, that the church of Corinth was prostituting the Lord's Supper to promote factions or divisions and to promote feasting, which we see in gluttony and drunkenness. It, he says, the Lord's Supper is profaned in the grossest sense by such irreverence and rudeness. But fearful believers should not be discouraged from attending at this holy ordinance by the sound of these words, as if they bound up themselves the sentence of damnation by coming to the table of the Lord unprepared. This sin, as well as all others, leaves room for forgiveness upon repentance. And the Holy Spirit never intended this passage of Scripture to deter serious Christians from their duty, though the devil has often used this passage to deter Christians and robbed good Christians of the best of comforts preached to us in this meal. And so this isn't a passage that the Holy Spirit is using to prevent you from coming to the Lord's Supper. This is a passage of Scripture that is sitting, setting for us the right context of the Lord's Supper and saying, come. Come to the table, okay? So, so we don't want to walk away with this timidness. We want to be reverent, but we don't want to not come to the table, okay? And so I just wanted to read that because I think that commentary that Henry gives there is, uh, is helpful for us. But as, as we know by now, there are, according to the Word of God, there are two sacraments, sacraments. There are two ordinances. And again, I use those words interchangeably. And they were established by Christ as an ordinary means by which the benefits of redemption are spiritually communicated to us, okay? And, and, and we looked at the first one again a couple of weeks ago. We, we, we looked at baptism, and if you missed that sermon, I would just encourage you to go and listen to it because it's relevant even to our discussion this morning. But today, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper, and the goal of the sermon is to communicate the what of the Lord's Supper, okay? What it, what it is, what it's preaching to us, and the how, of the Lord's Supper, how we should take it. So the what of the Lord's Supper and how we should take it. And this makes 1 Corinthians chapter 11 a very helpful text for us, although we could go to other places as well that would be helpful. But this is where we're going to camp out primarily, even though I'm going to reference a few different passages to kind of fill our perspective on the Lord's Supper out a little bit more. But I'd encourage you, just keep your Bibles open to this section in chapter 11 as I preach through certain aspects. But let's start with defining what the Lord's Supper is, what it preaches to us. And my overarching point for you regarding this, and this will be familiar to you, is that the Lord's Supper is a means of grace. And kids, if you're following along, that's a fill in the blank for you that you can use your mom and dad's worship guide to help you with that. But the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, right? And I'd encourage you, keep yourself familiar with that phrase because we use it a lot around Deer Park Fellowship and, and we'll continue to use it. But I covered the means of grace briefly a few, year, a few weeks ago when I uh, defined it, but the means of grace that we're talking about here are the Word, okay, the Word, the Scripture, prayer, and sacrament, okay, Word, prayer, sacrament. The Lord communicates His grace to you through those 
three things. He, if you will, ordinarily grows you through those three things. So, so the Lord's Supper is an ordinary means that the Lord invented and he uses to strengthen us in grace. And again, communicate spiritually to us the benefits of redemption, right? So, so the Lord's Supper, much like baptism, it's not just symbolic, right? It's not just symbolic. Grace is mysteriously communicated to us as we observe it. Now, taking it doesn't save you in the same way that baptism doesn't save you. And when we take it, right, when we take the elements, there's no change that occurs to the substance of the bread or to the substance of the cup. In other words, we're not literally eating the body of Jesus. We're not literally drinking the blood of Jesus. The elements are ordinary means that nourish our faith by the Spirit of God according to the Word of God. But what exactly is going on? What, what, what is, how is the Lord strengthening us, if you will, as we take these elements? Now, we could fill this out in greater detail, and I can spend sermons just working through that question, seeking for us to answer that question, and it would still be inexhaustible, right? We, we can't exhaust just the richness that we find in these ordinances, these sacraments. But the main thing that I want you to see this morning is that our faith in the sufficiency of Jesus is strengthened as we take this meal. Right? Our faith in the sufficiency of Jesus is strengthened as we take this meal. And we have such a hard time believing in the sufficiency of Jesus, don't we? Maybe not from a confessional standpoint. Maybe we're not, we're not going around and saying that. But if we were to examine our lives, right? If we were to, to honestly examine our heart posture, we would find there unbelief. We would. The verses that we read together every Lord's Day remind us of the sufficiency of Jesus. Look back with me, verses 23 to 26. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken. For who? For you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. In the very institution of the Lord's Supper, right, we see Jesus here communicating to the twelve. Right, Paul's recounting what Jesus taught them, taught the twelve, right, that his sacrifice is for them. It's for them. And, and this is a message that they carried that Paul picked up along the way because the resurrected Christ appointed Paul an apostle later. But this is a message that they carried with them as they faithfully planted local churches, as they faithfully planted visible churches, right? The sacrifice of Jesus is for you. It's for you. And, and think through this with me because I'm not speaking this morning as your pastor generically. I'm not saying that Christ is for you generically. I'm speaking to you. Deer Park Fellowship, 
Christ's sacrifice is for you, for you, right? Really, really for you. And his sacrifice was sufficient, was sufficient, which means that it met the Father's standard perfectly. There's nothing left to be done, absolutely nothing left to be done. His sacrifice, the sacrifice of Christ Jesus resulted in your redemption, resulted in my redemption, right? You're really redeemed, really. And our faith is is strengthened as we remember this, and it needs to be strengthened, right? Because we often have such weak faith. But our faith is strengthened as we remember this because we come a lot of times and we say things to ourselves or maybe we verbalize them to one another and we say, well, you don't know the sins of my past. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the sins that I'm struggling with right now that if they were projected up on a screen that you would abandon me, would leave me. But we come to the table and we remember that not an ounce of Christ's blood was wasted. Do you think the Father would waste the blood of a son? And taking the Lord's Supper, it's one of the primary ways that we remember this, right? To take it, to take the elements, is to remember that it is. As the bread and the wine touch our tongues, there's this proclamation, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, going out. And who's the proclamation going out to? To each other, to one another. We're preaching to one another as we take the elements. And what's the proclamation, according to 1 Corinthians 11? It's the Lord's death. It's the Lord's death. And what about his death? What about the death of our Savior? Again, It was for you. It was for me. And maybe you're sitting here and you're weary, right? You're physically weary. You're spiritually exhausted. And you just feel like you can't go on any further. And you're doubting this morning. You're just full of doubt, right? Maybe you're wrestling with your sin so much you think to yourself, I have disqualified myself from being saved. I've disqualified myself from obtaining salvation. Hear me well. You have absolutely disqualified yourself, and there's nothing that you can do about it. Absolutely nothing that you can do about it. But you have not disqualified Jesus Christ. You haven't disqualified Jesus. His body was broken, His blood was spilled for you. For you. 1 John chapter 2, the first two verses. My little children, John writes, These things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, that's all of us, right? If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Do you see the superiority of Christ's work there? He's our advocate 
He's our advocate. He's the propitiation, the, 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 the sacrifice of atonement for our sin. And when we take the Lord's Supper, when we take it, we're being strengthened in our faith to believe that, to rest in that, to persevere in that, to persevere in Christ. The, the Lord's Supper... It communicates, again, mysteriously, it communicates grace to us. And it reminds us that, that we're forgiven, right? It reminds us that Christ is in us and that we're in him forever, forever. So primarily, again, and we could fill this out more, but primarily that's the what of the Lord's Supper. Let's focus on the how, the how of the Lord's Supper, okay? So there's... A certain way that we should approach the Lord's Supper. Okay, we've in a very short way we've defined it, but but we do see in First Corinthians chapter eleven and in other places in Scripture we see that there's a certain way in which we should take it. Okay, the first first thing that we see in our text is that we must not be in conflict with one another as we take it. That we must not be in conflict as we take it. Right the it's in the first section I read in chapter 11 there, but it's summed up well by Paul's statement in verse 18. He says, for first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. Right, taking the Lord's Supper is an act of worship unto the Lord, right? It's the spillover of our gratitude for God in Christ having saved us. And we're to approach the Lord's table, right? As we approach it together in a few moments, we're to approach it in unity. We're to approach it in unity. We're to approach it in fellowship with one another, right? If there's disunity in our body, if we're being <clears throat> torn apart by various opinions, and by the way, oftentimes we mistake a lack of self-control over our mouths for being truthful, don't we? Right? The, the church doesn't need to hear all of your opinions. Don't need to hear all of my opinions, and neither does your spouse. Huh? Exhibit self-control. Exhibit self-control. But if we're sinning against each other, and we are asserting strong opinions, and if we're gossiping about one another, and just devouring one another in the way that, and, 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 and while we're doing that, we're coming to the Lord's table, there's a problem. There's a problem. Right? That was what was happening at Corinth. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he tell, told them in verse 17, and the Spirit of God is telling us this morning, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better but for the worse. Let that not be true of us at Deer Park Fellowship. Amen? We come together for the better. And think about the arrogance of coming to the table while at the same time being in habitual conflict with one another for a moment. Right? In doing that, we're saying, of course, we were enemies of God, and of course, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Right? Romans chapter 5, verse 10. And yes, God has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103, 12. But my conflict, my pride, my issues with a brother or a sister in Christ is just a bridge too far to mend, just too much. God made peace with me, but I will not make peace with my brother or sister. 
Do you see how ugly that is, right? Do you see the pride there, right? That's that's what's going on practically when we're not striving by God's Spirit so far as it depends on us to live at peace. Romans chapter 12, verse 18. So there has to be peace, right? Husbands and wives and children and the spiritual family here at Deer Park Fellowship. This local church, we must be at peace so far as it depends on us. And just by way of encouragement to you, I am so grateful, and the elders are so grateful to pastor such a wonderful people of peace that, that, that we're not constantly dealing with gossiping and slandering and the tearing of, of, uh, down of one another. I'm thankful to God for that, right? Evidence of the Spirit moving in the lives of each of you. So we must not be in conflict with one another as we take it. Secondly, we must take it as a gathered church, not as individuals, as a gathered church. We're not taking it in the privacy of our own home. We take it when we gather. And this is perhaps one of the biggest misunderstandings when it comes to taking the Lord's Supper. Like baptism, the Lord's Supper is a visible church ordinance, and it must be participated in when the church is gathered, right? Paul isn't writing to individual believers. He's writing to the church of Corinth, here, right? He's rebuking the church of Corinth, in fact, for taking it abusively and for not waiting for the rest of the body to show up, to gather. Look back with me, verses 27 to verse 30, uh, 34. It says, therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and I've heard that preached before, but I've never heard it I've rarely heard it connected to the things that I think we need to grasp this morning. Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself first, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. But if anybody's hungry, let him eat at the house, right? Let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment and the rest I'll set in order when I come. Members in the church of Corinth, they were eating the bread and drinking the wine out of hunger, perhaps, right? And they were feasting with their factions. There there were favorites, right? There were factions in the church. They were playing favorites. Hey, we'll show up at this time, we'll leave. We'll show up at this time, we'll leave. We'll use the, the elements that were to be used for the Lord's Supper. We're going to use them and we're going to eat. But those elements were meant to be used at the Lord's table with the gathered church where Christ is spiritually present, right? And with not waiting on the rest of the believers with using these elements, again, it was an abusive use of the ingredients, if you will, the elements that were to be used for holy purposes. So, so we, don't, we don't take the Lord's Supper individually, right? Of course, we're taking it individually as we're coming, but we're, it shouldn't be, I'm, I'm focused by myself. It's me and G. It is, man, I have union with Christ. Therefore, I have union with you. 
And I want to discern both, right? I want to discern my union with Christ, and I want to discern my union with you, which is aided as even visually for us as we come together and we take the Lord's Supper. So we take it together in unity. We take it discerning the Lord's body, the bride of Christ. Three, and this is the point where I'm going to spend the rest of our time this morning, but the frequency of taking the Lord's Supper and the elements that we use matter. Okay, the frequency of taking the Lord's Supper and the elements that we use matter. Right? And, and just to tease this out, it, it may be a, a bit stretching for us as we're thinking through, not maybe just even our brains, but our hearts as well, uh, to come to some conclusions and, and a change that I want to propose this morning. And for those of you that are members, this will be review for you. But, but first note verse 23. Go back to verse 23 in 1 Corinthians 11 for a moment. Paul says, for I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. Okay, so there's a, what he's giving, he's, he, he's careful to deliver the instructions that he's giving to the church of Corinth in a certain way, right? So, so Paul isn't being creative, right? He didn't take liberties as he delivered instructions to the church of Corinth that he received from Jesus, right? And if Paul was careful... And if God has preserved his word for us, then we need to follow his example, right? We're not to be creative or inventive when it comes to the Lord's table. So just the first thing we need to see is is that. Secondly, as all of you know, it's our conviction at, at, at Deer Park Fellowship that the church participates in communion regularly, right? We participate in communion regularly. Uh, much like the creedal formulation that word trinity right the the, tr- the triunity of god right we 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 don't see that explicit in scripture we pull from scripture and we we come to the conclusion that our god is triune not because we see the word trinity explicitly in scripture i think that it's similar to how we come to a conclusion to regularly practice the Lord's Supper. I think that it is implicit in Scripture that a church is practicing the Lord's Supper regularly, not explicit. And I think we see that in the New Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul says that when we take the Lord's Supper, that we are not only remembering Christ, which is verses 24 and 25, but that our taking it, again, our taking it is a pronouncement. It is a proclamation by us, the gathered church, and that we're proclaiming the Lord's death, verse 26, right? It's, it's one of the means that the Lord has given us, has given his forgetful people, me and you, right, to help us remember, to help us remember we take to proclaim, okay, and we proclaim to remember, here and here, right? right? We want to be a church that corporately proclaims the Lord's sufficient death for our sins every single Lord's day. Right? It is his death and his bodily resurrection from the dead that brought us life, 
Right? Furthermore, if I were to take us to other places in the New Testament, we see a pattern of the early church coming together to take the Lord's Supper as they gathered on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Right? We see this habit in the patristic age as well, the age kind of following the, the, the early church there. And as we proclaim the Lord's death by taking the Lord's Supper each Sunday, we also don't want to forget that there's a spiritual feasting on Christ when we take it, right? That we're spiritually tasting of Christ and we seek Jesus get to the heart of spiritually feasting on him in passages like John chapter 6 verses 51 and 53. We see it just a chapter earlier, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16. So we want to be a people that are proclaiming the Lord's sufficient death and the forgiveness of sins because we're so forgetful of it. Right? We see a pattern for this in the New Testament, implicit in the New Testament. We see a pattern explicitly in the patristic age, but we also want to be a people that are, uh, are feasting spiritually on Jesus as we're coming. Okay? But what are the actual elements that we use? What are the actual elements? Let's start with the unleavened bread. Now, many of you maybe didn't know that we use unleavened bread, but that's what we use. And many of you may also not know that we have a team of seven women who, who serve our church body by baking unleavened bread every single Sunday for us. And I'm grateful to God for those women and, and for us being, them blessing us in that way. Right? As a church, we should be grateful for that. But why do we use unleavened bread in the Lord's Supper as we spiritually feast on Jesus, right? First, it was the type of bread that Christ and his disciples would have used as they took the Lord's Supper, right? It was carried over from the practice of Passover. We see Exodus chapter 13. We see Leviticus 23, Deuteronomy 16, Ezekiel 45, right? In the New Testament, when, when Jesus replaced the Passover with the Lord's Supper, it, it's natural that the unleavened bread would have been an element that was kept, right? So f first and foremost, there's that, or maybe not foremost, but first it was that. But secondly, and many of you know this, leaven normatively, not always, but leaven normatively represents sin, and, and thus it represents evil. It, it also represents in the Bible false teaching. It represents anti-Christ teaching, Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Right, these are things that the body of Christ is called to have nothing to do with. This is how the Apostle Paul puts it just a few chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 6 to 8. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you, but certainly notate it. He, again, rebuking the church of Corinth, he says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about sin, using that there. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you're, you are truly unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? Christ, he became sin, yet he knew no sin, experientially knew no sin. So he, he, he was truly unleavened in that sense, right? He did that so that we might become the righteousness of God, so that we might become truly unleavened, you and me, 
right? Christ never sinned. He's unleavened, and he took sin upon himself to make us unleavened like him, right? So that means the, 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 the perfect spotless lamb, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, he has removed our transgressions, and we believe that our practice of communion should represent the purity of Christ. It should represent the expiation work that he's performed in our lives, in the lives of those who share union with him, right? The supper is representative of our union with him. So the, the, we think that the unleavened bread symbolizes this biblical reality for us well, right? We want to eat the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8. And using unleavened bread in communion, it, it preaches that to us. And, and perhaps for those of you who did not know that, maybe that can help to color, if you will, the Lord's Supper better for you as you take of the bread, all right? But what of the cup, what of the cup? All right, well, at Deer Park Fellowship, we've since our inception, we've taken, we've taken grape juice uh, in place of wine, which is a, admittedly a rather young tradition that's been handed down to us. So f- for many of you, this is what you've always done. It's what I personally have always done. But increasingly, though, and I confess this to our church members recently, I'm growing in my conviction that we need to offer wine as an option in addition to the grape juice. And, and this, this is the re- these are the reasons why. First, wine, even mixed with a little bit of water, was the early church practice in the same way that unleavened bread was the early church practice. And again, hold, hold in your heads that Paul was careful to deliver these instructions as he had received these instructions from the Lord, right? He, would, he wouldn't have modified or tweak these instructions. But the practice of using grape juice in communion, as I, as I said a moment ago, is actually a very young practice. And it comes, and, and some of you may come from uh, backgrounds where you've always taken wine. And this is the first time you've ever taken grape juice was coming here. And some of you may not be Christians and you're wondering why this is even a big deal, right? Um, but the, the concern about wine, and there's a legitimate concern about wine, it comes from a place of Christians wanting to love their neighbor and, and to, to, to be mindful of people who may uh, struggle with, with alcohol. And so there, there are certainly legitimate concerns there that we shouldn't be um, dismissive of. Um, but if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you would, you would see that this is an issue at the Corinthian church as, as well. So, so this isn't an issue that we're all of a sudden facing in the 21st century here, right? We're, we're not the people that are, are the first to face this. There has always been an issue. Drunkenness has always been an issue, and it's sinful. Look, look at verses 21 to 22 as it relates to the Corinthian church not waiting on others and using the materials for communion in a gluttonous way. Again, verses 21, 22, in eating, each each one takes his own supper ahead of the others. One is hungry, another is drunk, right? Not off of grape juice, right? 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. So, again, the ingredients of the Lord's Supper here, they were being used in an unholy way way. And the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the spirit of God, he rebukes them for it. But notice what Paul 
again, under the inspiration of the Spirit, notice what he did not do. Right? He didn't tinker with the elements that were being used in order to make the Corinthian church repent or in order to accommodate the drunks and the gluttons who were using the bread as well for unholy purposes. He would have never thought that he had the authority to do that. Right? He, he was a messenger of Christ. He was an ambassador of Christ, right? giving these instructions to the church as they were handed to him, as they were given to him. So what do we see Paul do here? Right? Paul, by the Spirit of God, he called the church of Corinth to self-control, right? which is, as we know, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Right? He calls them to self-control. He called them to take the bread and the wine, the Lord's Supper, in a, quote, worthy manner, verse 27, to use those elements for holy purposes. And as Christians, we have to heed the call to self-control in every aspect of our lives, don't we? The Bible is clear that drunkenness is sin, right? And Deuteronomy chapter 21, Proverbs is full of warnings about it, right? Chapter 20, verse 1, chapter 23, verses 29 to 35, chapter 31, verses 4 to 5, Luke 21, Romans 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, right? And we should see as Christians that we should model self-control, that we should have self-government. That's the foundation of all the, the, the other three spheres of government, right? Which are family, church, and state. The foundational government is self-government, self-control. But we shouldn't dismiss the elements like wine because of abuses and the lack of self-control. To do that, is to lay blame not on the sinful heart of man, but on the substance that in moderation is described favorably in Scripture. In fact, it's presented as a gift in Scripture. We see that elsewhere. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23, Psalm 104, Joel chapter 3, verse 18. But even more than that, I would argue that as well intended as we may be, to modify, to tweak is a vain attempt to be more pious than God. In the Hebrew, in the Old Testament, there are three different words that translate into the English, into wine in, in the English, and they all mean real fermented wine. It's the kind of wine that if you lack self-control with, you're going to get drunk. All right. In the Greek, the New Testament, there's one word that translates to wine. Oinos is the word, and we see that word used to condemn drunkenness in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, but we also see it used to describe the first miracle that Jesus did at the wedding at Cana in John chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, where he makes the very best of wine, verses 10 and 11, as a gift. Now, we have to wrestle with this question, again, no matter how well-intended we are. Was Jesus sinful or insensitive to those guests at the wedding that might get drunk off of that wine? The answer, of course, is absolutely not. And that means that, you know, many of us that may say causing a weaker brother to stumble, this is the, not the way in which we apply that particular passage of Scripture. Right? Causing another brother to stumble means that we're forcing that brother or that sister to sin, but not anything beyond that. 
So Jesus absolutely was not wrong or sinful or inconsiderate. And again, and we shouldn't, no matter how good our intentions are, may be, right? Seek to be holier or more pious than Jesus. And, and of course, I'm saying that to help us think through this a bit more clearly. I know that none of us are saying that by any stretch of the imagination. But, but no matter how good our intentions are, we, we want to be a people that aren't going beyond, so far as it depends on us, what the Scriptures are saying, all right? But we see wine, as I've mentioned this already, it was used by our Lord at Passover in the same way that the unleavened bread was used. So, so the practice of taking wine at communion, it, it has deep historical and biblical roots, regardless of how you or I feel personally about the matter. But what about the symbolism? Because I spent time talking about that as it related to the unleavened bread. The, the wine... It, it, it better represents the purpose of the bitter cup of the wrath of God that Jesus had to drink in order to acquire forgiveness and reconciliation between us and God. Jesus prayed, Matthew 26, verse 39, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Right, the, the blood of Jesus was spilled, which the wine represents, because Jesus had to drink the cup of God's wrath. And, and the cup of wrath that required the shedding of blood was not sweet. It was not sweet. It was bitter. Right, the, the, the unleavened bread and wine ate us in capturing this most important event. In other words, the Lord's Supper, it's rich in imagery. And we want to avail ourselves of all these things as we make it a regular practice of taking the elements, as we take Christ's body and as we take his blood spiritually. As we, we take the elements, we remember the bitter sacrifice Jesus made to put our sins away. As we take the elements, we remember that when he actually died, we spiritually died. And as we take the elements, we do so knowing that he didn't remain dead, right? Jesus bodily and eternally rose. And when he bodily and eternally rose, we spiritually rose with him and we await the day that we will physically resurrect because of his sufficient death. So, in closing this morning, I want to give us some direction. All right, the elders would like to begin making wine an option at the Lord's table in March. Okay? And, and we certainly invite any conversation that you'd like to have with us about the matter. But for those of you who are conscientious objectors to wine, there is a choice of grape juice and will always be a choice of grape juice for you. So, so I don't want you to worry about that. I think that but those of you who, who are, like me, are, are increasingly convinced that wine should be offered in the same way as we have the unleavened bread, the elders and I would like to make that an option that's available to you. So here's how we do that. And I'm going to announce this each Lord's Day beginning in March, especially as some of you navigate your children taking communion. But first, the, the packaged cups, which I've called the COVID cups that we took for a, a while, Right, they're still going to be in the, the center of the tray, and, and they're gluten-free, and I know that some of you here have severe allergies to, to gluten, and so we want to have that option available to you for those of you who, who have that. Secondly, the, the ring around the, the, the packaged cups, so the next ring will remain as, as grape juice for those of you that want to take grape juice, right? and then the outer ring, the, 
um, is, is, will be wine. And, and the elders will, as, as we man the stations, will certainly aid you in selecting, to, uh, selecting those particular elements. And so please feel free to, to, to talk with us as we're giving you the Lord's Supper. But for today, for this morning, for this sermon, I want us to remember, right, as we come to the Lord's table together, that we are proclaiming the sufficiency of Christ's death for us, right? that we're taking it to remember, that we're taking it in unity, and that the elements that we use really do matter. So why don't we go together to the Lord in prayer? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for 1 Corinthians 11, God. And, and Lord, I even pray about this change that I'm proposing. God, change is never easy, and it can come with lots of questions and the potential for disunity, Lord. But God, I thank you that, um, that we can strive by your spirit to, um, to be in unity with one another. And Lord, that you would help us um, to come to the table in that way, God. And that you would help us increasingly to be more mindful of what these elements represent, God. And as we take these elements, that you as well will increase our faith, our certainty in the sufficiency of Christ. And so, Lord, we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name I pray.